Should Corey Lewandowski be persona non grata for Governor Kristi Noem? From SDPB Radio, today is Wednesday, October 25th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, Seth Tupper is our Dakota political junkie for the day. We'll talk about his commentary in South Dakota Searchlight on the political operative and the governor. We'll also talk about the legacy of another South Dakota politician with national ambitions, George McGovern. We've got information on opportunities for veterans to learn more about launching and growing a small business, plus a documentary that gathers the wisdom of elders with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. More on that a bit later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. Well, the leaves are falling, temperatures are dropping, and old man winter is on his way. There's no way to know exactly what winter has in store for us this year, but perhaps the National Weather Service has some predictions for us. And even when we can't say for sure what snow and storms are on the way, we can always bring you tips on how to prepare for a safe winter. Andrew Kalin is a hydrologist with the National Weather Service in Sioux Falls, and he's with us now on the phone. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we are heading into an El Nino year again. Help us understand what that means for us and what uh, that doesn't mean for us here in South Dakota. Yeah, so absolutely. So when we're looking at El Nino or La Nina conditions, probably two terms you've heard before, we're looking at um, temperatures um, in the in the ocean, but those can have um, impacts on kind of the global circulation pattern. Now, for an El Nino, there's not a real um, clear signal in our part of the country as far as how that impacts us. Um, generally, that tends to lend towards maybe a, a slightly higher chance of above normal temperatures, and that's what the official um, winter forecast from the National Weather Service is showing for this year. Uh, precipitation, it doesn't really tend to have a, any clear impact, and, and so there's really kind of an equal chance of both above, bo- below, and uh, uh, normal precipitation for this upcoming winter. All right. I think I've been telling people we actually had a fall this year. We actually had an autumn and uh, the leaves there in a lot of places are still on the trees and still looking beautiful. And sometimes we go right from the heat of the summer to boom, it's winter. But I just heard that forecast and there's a cold front to come and tell us a little bit about what's ahead for the state um, this weekend. Yeah, it has actually been uh, kind of a rather pleasant fall, but uh, that kind of comes to an end, as you mentioned, in the next couple of days. So uh, as we head into the weekend temperatures right now in the, the 50s and, and even some lone 60s holding on across the far southeast part of the state, uh, those go away um, and those will be replaced with uh, 30s and, and 40s and even even cooler off to the northwest across the northwest part of the state. So uh, high temperatures closer to that freezing mark uh, look on the way. Um, for the weekend and then even some snowflakes. Do you think we'll have dangerous driving conditions this weekend or they're still pretty clear just looking for some snow and cold? Yeah, right now um, it looks like probably a lighter snow event. Um, Ground temperatures are still warm enough this time of year that that tends to mitigate any road impacts or at least any more of the significant road impacts. So uh, certainly something if you have travel plans, keep an eye on the forecast, but that doesn't look to be a huge concern at this point in time. It's probably more of your your general first snow of the season where kind of your grassy surfaces or bridges tend to have more of the issues than than the roads themselves. So Okay, first snow of the season. Y'all are going to forget how to drive. 
we we know it. <laughs> so let's do the yeah. safety. Let's do the safety up at update. Um, tell us how we kind of prepare for that shifting in to winter, especially when we get behind the wheel. Yeah. So obviously, the first one of the year is always kind of putting the the skills back to the test. Um, <laughs> so the so things that you can kind of remember is obviously give uh, give yourself extra um, time to get where you need to go. Um, allow extra dis- distance between you and the the car in front and behind you. Um, you know, don't make any sudden uh, turns or, or things along those lines. And as we get further into winter, um, it also becomes more important that we remember to have our um, safety kit in our car, um, especially if we're taking longer trips, something that would keep you and your family um, safe and well, you know, if you were to become stranded. Again, that doesn't have to be a case with this system, but something to have on hand for the rest of winter, certainly. Good time to prepare. And I always throw out my shout out to the National Weather Service in Sioux Falls, especially, but across the region. The uh, X social media slash Twitter presence, um, that's the only thing I use Twitter for anymore, is the National Weather Service telling me (laughs) what to do this morning before I leave for work. So, Andrew Kalin, thank you so much. He's a hydrologist with the National Weather Service in Sioux Falls. Andrew, we thanks for stopping by. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The U.S. Small Business Administration seeks to support all small business owners. Ahead of National Veterans Small Business Week, they are putting a spotlight on business leaders who have served their country. Jamie Wood is the South Dakota District Director of the Small Business Administration. SDPB's Crystal Mija asked Wood to lay out ways SBA is celebrating veteran-owned businesses this year. Take a listen. Every year, the beginning of November is when we celebrate, the first week of November is when we celebrate National Veterans Small Business Week every year. And so this year, to celebrate that first week of November, we are holding a small business summit on November 1st, all day long. It's going to start around 9 o'clock and go all the way up to 6 o'clock. And there's many different uh, pieces and parts of that agenda So there's something for every phase of business and every type of business owner. It's a free event. Many times these events uh, require a registration fee, but because of the great, uh, you know, celebration for National Veterans Small Business Week, we are uh, offering all these different partners in the business space under one roof. So there's a lot of great access for business owners. And this is going to take place at the South Dakota Military Heritage Alliance in Sioux Falls. This particular small business summit is, even though it's happening during uh, National Veterans Small Business Week, it actually is open to all businesses, not just veterans. And we are going to showcase uh, some great uh, speakers. We have Andrea Thompson, who is a retired Army colonel and intelligence officer. She has also, she's from Pierre originally, and she's always kept one foot in South Dakota. Actually, she just recently accepted a position at Dakota State University as a, a CEO there. And, and um, she has previously served as an undersecretary for Department of State, too. So she has global uh, access and awareness of how the U.S., and even South Dakota fits into that global 
you know, piece of the, the, the puzzle. And so we are so excited to have her as an expert speaker at this. And the fact that she's a woman veteran who has excelled to some of the highest levels for our nation uh, and represented South Dakota, you know, is, is even more icing on the cake. And so we're just really excited to have her. We're going to have some great panels that are going to dis- that they're going to discuss the supply chain. So contracts for both the government side of the house at all levels, uh, local, state, and federal, and also uh, corporate supply chain. That's going to be a mix of, the panelists are going to be a mix of experts that are providers for the services and resources. The Apex Accelerator State Director Marcella Hurley will be on there talking about uh, the government supply chain. We're going to have some small businesses on there that are actually providing goods and services to the supply chain, both the the contracting for the government and then also for corporate contracts. And it's going to be uh, spearheaded by Michelle Kakachek, who is our new director for the South Dakota Manufacturing and Technology Solutions Center based out of Lake Area Tech in Watertown. And that's funded by Department of Commerce um, with with other you know funders, including the state. And so we're really excited to bring that panel. And there's also going to be a small business financing panel. Like, how do you get access to capital? We're going to talk about that. We're going to bring in some top-notch SBA partner lenders and some businesses, our South Dakota Business Persons of the Year, Houndstooth House, uh, which is an interior design uh, company owned by two women. And they've been uh, together for about... 20 years as business partners, and they have a wonderful story. They're going to talk about how they've leveraged SBA lending to grow their business over the years, and they've they've leveraged it a few different times. They grew from <laughs> they were working moms, and so they would talk about having their carpet samples and their tile samples in the vans along with their children in their car seats, and they would go to job to job, and then they morphed into a brick and mortar, and then now in the past couple of years, they've grown into a beautiful space in Sioux Falls, that, uh, and they're, they're doing you know contracts across the U.S., and so uh, it's wonderful to see how they've leveraged the tools in the toolkit of SBA and they've been able to grow, you know, over the years and still be, you know, working moms and finding that balance between home and career, but then also providing top-notch, you know, service that's nationwide. And so they they actually traveled to DC this past year and uh, even were able to go to an event in the presidential rose garden that honored, you know, these small business persons of the year from across the nation. So it was really phenomenal. And then we'll have another panel that's going to look at exporting. And that is a growth area for South Dakota. A lot of people may not realize, but just in the past year, we have grown our exports by 12% in the state and 95% of receipts, so 95% of buying power is actually outside of the U.S. Did you know that? I mean, I that is amazing. That. <laughs> Only 5% of the economy, the global economy, is here in the United States. So we really are encouraging small businesses to look into opening their revenue building in, by including exporting and getting their goods and services, you know, abroad. Um, The biggest chunk of the economy for the globe is really between 
Canada, the U.S., and Mexico. So those are our really our big buying partners, are Mexico and Canada. We just had uh, uh, South Dakota Trade, which is a funded partner of SBA, just recently uh, went along with the lieutenant governor to a, a trade mission to Mexico. And many small businesses, and it was about uh, manufactured food, many small businesses went along with them to a big trade show in Mexico City, and they were able to make connections at this trade show that are, you know, panning out now into, you know, substantially millions of dollars of export revenue. And so we are so excited to be a part of this and really see this grow for South Dakota. So there's going to be an export panel. It's going to be talked about the mission and what's coming up. And then in the afternoon, we have a fantastic lineup of different workshops that are free that are going to be focusing everything on marketing your business to, you know, contracting and corporate and government supply chain, how to get registered as a certified business. We have certain set-asides for women-owned businesses, service-disabled veterans, uh, minority-owned businesses, and then also something called Hub Zone, which is historically underutilized business zone. Now that hub zone, there's over 20 of these hub zone designated areas across the state. And you can be from any type of background. Uh, You know, you can be a white male, you can be a minority, you can be a woman, you could be a service disabled veteran, you could live in a rural area or an urban area if there's a hub zone in there. And in that hub zone, you can apply for that takes about 30 days to get the certification. And and then get into some of these set aside, you know, government contracts around the U.S. that are you know set aside for folks that are registered in hub zones. So we're going to talk about that during the workshop. We're going to have also um, federal contracting officers and some corporate uh, contract officers on hand to do one on one business you know, discussions with small businesses. It's a networking between these contract officers and businesses. Again, this event is free. You do have to register. Go to sba.gov slash South Dakota. Click on November 1st, and you'll see it pop up. Make that registration so we can get a head count. Uh, There's going to be a complimentary lunch that's going to be there. But we want to uh, make sure that everybody statewide knows about this event. And and to uh, to end the day, we're going to have a nice uh, social network again, um, for a couple hours where we can just all get together and really celebrate uh, veteran-owned businesses. And, again, that's something that everybody should get on, get in on celebrating. And this is just a one-day thing on 1 November. Yep. But the entire week is Veterans SBA Week. Yeah, the entire week is, is Veteran National Veterans Small Business Week. And there are many different events taking place across the nation, and a lot of them are online. So it's easy to, you know, access a training event that's going to offer expertise, whether it's access to lending, uh, access to contracting. Uh, It could be how to start a business. Maybe it could be business succession, how to turn your business over. There's a wide variety. And you can go to sba.gov and just uh, look at the calendar of upcoming events. Or you can always go to sba.gov slash South Dakota if you want to dig down a little further. We hope you will. We carry a lot of these events on our calendar. There's a calendar that you can open and 
you know, look on it. There's a lot of online activity happening every every week, including National Veterans Small Business Week. And for these events, you don't necessarily have to be a veteran. So you can be any type of business owner from any background. And the information, you know, is is still the same. Sometimes we may focus information towards a woman business owner or a minority business owner or a veteran business owner, but the information and the fundamental elements for starting a business and growing a business, they're all the same. So any of these are open for anybody to attend. Um, I'd like to give you just a little bit of data, and I'll send you some more out of um, our business profile, but also you know, a link if you want to dig around for um, the veterans. SBA has a link that is dedicated to serving the veteran demographic. And when we talk about the veteran demographic in this the business space, we're talking about all era veterans. We're talking about currently, you know, current active duty members that are serving right now. Guard and reserve, they're considered, you know, part of this. And uh, all era veterans as well as military spouses. So we're trying to make sure that any, anybody in this, you know, veteran demographic understands that you can leverage the resources and programs and initiatives that SBA has dedicated to the veteran demographic. You can find information about them at sba.gov veterans. There is veterans with an S, okay? Uh, there's a great cache of information that's there that talks about all the different programs. We have almost 30 uh, veteran business outreach centers across the U.S., in South Dakota, we are served by the Veteran Business Outreach Center of the Dakotas. It's located uh, out of Grand Forks, North Dakota, but the director is based out here in western South Dakota out of Spearfish. And so we serve both, you know, of the states uh, through them. And they offer free business counseling. It can be in person. It can be virtual. It can be through the telephone, email, whatever you're comfortable with. And those are free, you know, and if you're thinking about starting a business and you're in that veteran demographic, it's never too early to have the discussion, and it's going to make your business journey move a little bit smoother. The Small Business Summit is happening Wednesday, November 1st at the South Dakota Military Alliance Building in Sioux Falls. You can find more information online, sdpb.org news. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. In two recent editorials, Seth Tupper analyzed a few South Dakotans' political partnerships and how they're talked about on the national stage. One covered how George McGovern and Hubert Humphrey worked with others to address world hunger. They both left enduring legacies that continue to feed hungry families internationally. The other editorial commented on Governor Nome's partnership with Corey Lewandowski. Seth is the editor-in-chief of South Dakota Searchlight. He is our Dakota political junkie for today. He is joining us from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. Seth, welcome and happy birthday to South Dakota Searchlight today. Hey, thank you. Yeah, we launched one year ago today, uh, October 25th, 2022. So thanks to everybody who's who's read and subscribed and contributed. And, and thanks to my, my staff. It's been a, a fast year. Yeah. Tell people who haven't um, found out what South Dakota Searchlight is yet, what your mission and purpose is. Tell us a little bit about the, the, uh, the organization. Yeah, so we're we're part of uh, State's Newsroom, which is a national nonprofit, 
and they've stood up uh, independent uh, newsrooms in uh, websites. And I think I think they're in 36 states now, and there's there's more coming online soon. But uh, anyway, we we were funded uh, on a nonprofit basis by grants and donations, and we put all of our uh, work out for free, and we allow it to be republished by other media outlets for free if they if they choose to do that. And we focus on uh, statewide coverage, uh, mostly in you know politics and policy and that kind of thing. But it's kind of a you know uh, an, an experiment with with funding uh, this kind of news operation a different way, and it's been going great so far, and, and uh, we're having a lot of fun. Help people understand before we talk about these two um, editorial pieces. You've worked for the Rapid City Journal. You worked for South Dakota Public Broadcasting. You have other newspaper experience under your belt as well. When you sit down to work on commentary for South Dakota Searchlight, what's your mandate for the for for that program and as an editor? Well, yeah, one of the things that uh, in my job description, actually, with with South Dakota Searchlight is is to, uh, you know, have commentary and do commentary and try to be uh, what they call a thought leader in the state. And so so, uh, you know, I think it, it really helps uh, having spent my entire career in South Dakota um, when I was at the Daily Republic and Mitchell years ago, I had the opportunity to interview, you know, people like George McGovern on a, on a regular basis at that time. And so I kind of have a lot of uh, experiences and interviews and stories and different things piled up over the years. That when I when I get a news release like I got recently about a program that has George McGovern's name on it, um, I was able to kind of reflect back on some of those interviews I'd done with him and things I'd read about him over the years and, and use that as a, as a jumping off point to try to um, just advance a conversation and give a little historical perspective on you know what people can achieve in 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 politics on a on a lasting um, basis if they're willing to to set aside politics for a little while and, and and work on getting things done. Yeah, so let's talk about George McGovern and efforts to feed the world. He's another South Dakota politician that had national and even international ambitions. We talk about ambition a lot as if it's a bad thing. Not necessarily if you're going to feed people. Tell me a little bit about the press release you got and what we know about George McGovern's Food for Peace program. Yeah, so the press release recently came from uh, the Department of Agriculture, just kind of a the U.S. Department of Agriculture, just kind of a routine announcement that they were putting $455 million this year into two international food programs, Food for Progress, and then something called the McGovern Dole International Food for Education and Child Nutrition Program, which is a, a mouthful, obviously. But um, it just occurred to me, you know, when I when I saw that press release, $455 million going to that program. Um, wow, what a, what a legacy for somebody whose whose name is on that program, and that's that's George McGovern, who was born in Avon and uh, grew up in Mitchell, uh, went to DWU, was a World War II veteran, and uh, long time in Congress for South Dakota, and then also uh, the 1972 Democratic presidential nominee, as you said, uh, lost in a landslide to to Nixon. So um, that's was kind of the jumping off point for the commentary was just that you know here's a guy who obviously you know had a lot of political ambition and, uh, you know, climbed the ladder uh, steadily of, of politics in this country. But along the way, obviously, he, he took time to work across the aisle and, and to, to get things done. And one of those was throughout his career, a, a very consistent focus of his was feeding people, hungry people around the world. And he, he said that when he was in World War II as a bomber pilot, he saw in Europe how much people were suffering uh, under, for example, uh, the fascist Mussolini government in Italy. And he realized, you know, how hard it is to stand up and maintain a democracy 
when the people you're counting on to participate in that democracy don't have their basic needs met and are hungry. And mm -hmm. so that was a constant focus for him throughout the rest of his life was, was feeding people. And he thought that, uh, you know, American agricultural surpluses could be put to work around the world feeding hungry people. And if you feed those people, um, you know, that's a, an instrument of peace, basically, and, and maybe we won't have to have a World War III. And so that was uh, a lot of his focus. And so, so now, um, you know, the, the McGovern Dole International Food for Education and Child Nutrition Program, which feeds school kids around the world, is named for him and his Republican colleague, uh, Bob Dole, uh, who worked together with him on a lot of hunger issues. And that program has fed more than 5 billion school meals to more than 31 million children uh, around the world, which is which is quite a legacy. So you argue here that there's uh, not only, or I should say what I'm hearing you say, is that not only did he feel, did George McGovern feel, there was a moral imperative to feed people, largely because of what he witnessed in his military service, but also he thought that it was politically viable and important and even crucial in order to advance democracy to do that as well. Those two things went together for him. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, I'm not saying George McGovern was was perfect by any means. You know, I mean, he was a human being and a politician. And and of course, uh, there's always a political component to things. You know, when he was he was appointed head of the Food for Peace program. Uh, by John F. Kennedy in the 1960s, and 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 that was sort of a, a rung on the political ladder for him. So it was it was all kind of interwoven. You know, that, um, he 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 was a true believer in in feeding hungry people around the world and saw the need for it. Worked across the aisle to do it. Um, in some ways, it also benefited him politically. But you know, the the main takeaway that I had from it was just that you know, in this era we're in now, where Look what's going on in the in the U.S. House today. It seems like yeah. sometimes everything is is about politics. Um, certainly, things were political in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and and there was a lot of things wrong in the in that era too. But but there were leaders like George McGovern and Bob Dole who were willing to work across the aisle at, at points and say, well, there's a time for politics and there's a time for setting aside politics for the good of the country or, or, or for the world. Yeah. He also had his political opponents and a pretty hefty FBI file, and he famously sparred with the FBI um, scandals, things that were buried, things that people wanted to use to hurt him in his campaign. That hasn't changed much, only now we have uh, Twitter and social media to see a lot more images of these things. Let's jump to the present time when you wanted to write about Governor Christy Noem and her relationship with political consultant Corey Lewandowski. Why did you want to tackle that topic topic publicly now? Well, two two different things. I mean, one, uh, I this whole coverage. Uh, you know, there's been two different websites outside of South Dakota that have that have published the claim uh, that that. Christine Elm and Corey Lewandowski are having an affair. And that's, you know, those stories are based mostly on anonymous sources. And, you know, you can take from that what you will. But it, it reminded me of something I knew about from the past, which was uh, in the 1990s, then U.S. Senator Larry Pressler from South Dakota dealt with a situation where two people wrote a book about, uh, you know, what's called Washington Babylon, which was, which was marketed as an expose of Washington politics. And there was a chapter on Larry Pressler, and they, they claimed in that book that he was gay and that his marriage to his wife was a sham. Um, well, Pressler sued the publisher and got a settlement, and that publisher of that book had to apologize. Uh, this was back in 1998. 
And so I just went looking for that because I thought, you know, this what what what's being reported about Christy Nome now kind of reminds me of that. And then I realized it's the same guy, um, <laughs> the guy who wrote the story for the Daily Mail, Ken and, Silverstein, yeah. co-wrote it, uh, is the co-author of, of this book, Washington Babylon, from the 1990s. So that, that was one reason I wanted to just point that out, which I hadn't seen pointed out. Yeah. Uh, the same guy who got go it wrong, ahead, who had to apologize, who had to fight uh, in, in court. He, he has now done this hit piece on our governor after doing this on our senator. Correct. And, you know, again, people can, can draw their own conclusions, whatever, but uh, just want, I just thought that needed to be part of the, of the record, basically. Yeah. Um, he said it was inaccurate and hurtful. I don't know. That's the conclusion, right? <laughs> that, was, that was what I the mean, publisher said at the time conclusion? about the Pressler and, reporting. And, yeah, and Governor mm-hmm. Noem said this is an old, tired attack on conservative women. It's total garbage. It's a disgusting lie. Um, that's part of the conclusion as well. But you make this other point, which is, I think, very interesting for us to talk about, which you say we don't really need to know what's going on between Governor Noem and Corey Lewandowski because you say their relationship is inappropriate anyway. Tell me about that. Yeah, so let, let's just give Governor Noem the benefit of the doubt and, and say that what, what's been written in the tabloids, and let's just assume for a second that that that's not true and that this is just basically we have zero uh, evidence that it's true we have right. zero evidence right. that this other is than true. hearsay yeah other than hearsay <laughs> okay. yeah and we so did. let's let's assume it's not and let's assume this is just a, a nationally ambitious governor who's working with a national political consultant well you know the problem with that is you start looking into Corey Lewandowski's background and boy uh, does he have a lot of a lot of stuff in there that's that's troubling um, you know, he was arrested in the late 1990s for this odd thing where he was working for a congressman and brought a, a loaded gun into a House office building. The congressman he was working for at the time ended up being criminally convicted in a, in a, a corrupt lobbying scandal. Uh, that was Congressman Bob Ney, who Corey Abramoff later called the mentor and a surrogate father. And, you know, when a guy's his surrogate father and mentor is a guy who, who was criminally convicted of basically taking bribes in Congress, that's that's a problem. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Corey Lewandowski has also been accused multiple times of acting improperly toward women, including one time at a charity fundraiser in uh, Las Vegas where Governor Nome was, was present and, and witnessed some of the behavior. And so, you know, why do you associate with this guy? Um, you know, and, you know, there's been a couple reporters, as we mentioned, who are alleging that it's because they're having an affair without really any real evidence or anything. So, so we have to ponder, well, if that's not the answer, what's, what is the answer? And the only thing I can come up with then is that, you know, Governor Noem apparently thinks this guy is, is so good for her political ambition and can help her so much politically that she's willing to overlook some of this troubling behavior in his past. So she has walked away from him and does not, he's not, he's not, uh, Ian Fury says they've never paid him a dime. Um, she's not in a relationship with him, a professional relationship with him anymore. He, last time he was in South Dakota, they did not even greet on the tarmac. So has she, has she, has she satisfied the call for uh, severing a political relationship with Lewandowski? Not that we know of, no, because despite the fact that, that uh, the governor's spokesperson says she cut ties with him, they have been, you know, seen together on, on many occasions uh, since then. Uh, maybe not many, I shouldn't say, but on, on some occasions since then. And so uh, there doesn't seem to be a complete cutting of ties there. Um, you know, uh, they're still attending some functions together. So um, I guess that would be my question is, you know, for somebody who now has really subjected Governor Nome um, to 
really terrible stuff in the tabloids and he dragged her down into the the mud and her family and her name and uh has all these other problems besides that you know um why wouldn't you just sort of swear off this guy and stay away from him um would be would be my question i guess what do you think her answer would be well, I don't know. And I, all I can speculate again is what I did in the commentary, which is apparently there's a thought that, that this guy can really um, service um, her political ambitions and is, and is uh, a good connection to have if, if she wants to get on the Trump ticket as vice president or, or, or you know, do anything else nationally that she may have ambitions of doing. So and what I'm hearing him say, and by him I mean Ian Fury, is that she hasn't paid him. And that they don't have connections. She's saying that the the idea that their relationship is inappropriate or unprofessional is a lie. We've heard her say in the past when we were asking her about uh, president or a candidate Donald Trump before he was president. She said, "I don't need him to be um, a role model. Um, I need him to pass the conservative legislation that America needs." And she said at that time that Jesus Christ was her role model. So we know the thought process of this governor is. I don't have to vet everyone I stand next to in a picture um, to make sure they've never done anything wrong. This guy turned out to be trouble. I, I'm not very close to him anymore. But she's saying, hey, this is just a, a, a well-timed attack because it came right after uh, she endorsed President Trump from her political enemies. And I'm not all that concerned with it. I'm getting back to work. We, we know she said all those things. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the governor right now. Mm -hmm. But these are all things that we have heard her arguments for. What do you make of all that? Uh, I, I, I guess I, I'm, I don't know what to make of it. I'm a little bit confused, I think, like a lot of South Dakotans. Because, again, we, we hear all that. And, and her spokesman said she cut ties and all this. But yet, you know, there he was at the Trump rally. And, and there she was. And Donald Trump was calling him out by name and, and calling her out by name. And so, I, and that's part of the reasons I wrote the commentary and yeah. ended it the way I did, which was, you know, uh, I'm just a little confused as to why there isn't a little more effort to be uh, more, uh, keep a greater distance from this guy. Um, again, you know, if, if, if I was associated with somebody who, who had put me through the ringer and the tabloids uh, the way that, you know, this association with Corey Lewandowski has done with, with Christy Noem, I, I would think I would be a little more prone to to uh, be a little more strict in in, in cutting ties with him uh, and and not being at the same events and et cetera. So mm -hmm. it, it remains a mystery to me why why there hasn't been more um, more of a, a cutting of ties in that way. Because I mean, even if you believe everything Christy Nelm has said, I mean, it, it still just her association with him has has been very harmful, you know, um, to her. Uh, it seems like so. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't really know, and I think like a lot of South Dakotans, I'm I'm just confused as to why, as to why, um, there isn't more of a, you know, hands off, um, completely strict severing of ties with this guy. You can find Seth Tupper's work online at SouthDakotaSearchlight.com. He's joined us for our Dakota Political Junkies conversation this week. Happy birthday, one year of South Dakota Searchlight. Thanks for stopping by, Seth. Thanks, as always, for having me. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. A documentary from the Black Hill State University's Center for American Indian Studies seeks to record, preserve, and educate 
It's called Hawashtaya Oyuspapi, Capturing Their Good Voices. The documentary includes interwoven interviews with six Native American elders from across the state. They share both their stories and their wisdom. The two professors who led the project are now with us from SDPB's Sue W. White Studio at Black Hill State University in Spearfish. Dr. Erla Marcus is director of the Center of American Indian Studies at Black Hill State. Dr. Rosie Sprague is an instructor at the center. Dr. Marcus, welcome. Thanks for being here. Hi, welcome. Thank you for having us. Dr. Sprague, welcome as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Marcus, let's start with you because this, uh, this project had some some great support from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and it has a sense of um, urgency to it while also being timeless in so many ways. Tell me a little bit about what planted the seed for this work. Actually, um, the money that supported this program came from uh, the humanities, but it also came with responding to COVID and some of the backlash that came from COVID. And Mm. when we looked at what was happening on our South Dakota, North Dakota reservations, and how many of our elders were not only getting COVID, but actually passing away, and we were seeing it in larger numbers um, than any of our other populations. And so we thought this was an opportunity to um, go out and actually interview the elders that we have wanted to in the past, but now that we had the funds to support that we thought this would be that opportunity to go out and actually gather the information and stories that the elders have to share. That adds a layer to it to just know that in the conversations, the awareness of COVID and the possibility of mortality was also right in the room with you. Dr. Sprague, tell me a little bit about how that impacted um, the conversations. It was very special to have those six elders. It was very difficult for us to, uh, I mean, choose six elders mm-hmm. from all of the elders that we have here in South Dakota and North Dakota. Um, but from our uh, a working group of interns, uh, Dr. Marcus and I, uh, the late Jace DeCorey, we also had um, John and Ken Little, who were on as our director, producer, editors. Um, we wove it down to six, and again, the the uniqueness of those interviews is uh, we, we didn't want to just have a set of uh, questions that we, we you know wanted to ask them we wanted to just have it be like a free conversation almost as if you know in our culture we gather around the dinner table and we visit and through visiting is where we learn our most special uh, you know oral history and stories and so that's kind of what we wanted it to be like and that's why the way it turned it out it was really it's really beautiful to hear them share stories that some of them have never shared before mm-hmm. um, and we got that through uh, the filming yeah tell me a little bit about what's happening behind the camera because I noticed that too as I was watching that uh, these speakers really appeared at least to be incredibly comfortable and relaxed and willing um, enthusiastic about sharing their stories. How do you create that kind of in environment where everybody feels safe and warm and ready to talk? Yeah, that was actually, that came from um, the late Jace DeCorey, our professor emerita here at Black Hill State. Um, we chose her to be the interviewer of the elders because uh, not only was she, she has been here at Black Hill State, she was here for 30 plus years, but she knew them, most of them personally. And so she really, you know, behind the camera, she was the one asking questions and leading the discussion. And so they felt very comfortable 
uh, with her uh, in that room that they they shared most of their stories in. And so I think that's what was, it was just a nice, a warm environment and a safe environment for them to share. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Jace DeCorey, <laughs> because what a, what a loss and what a legacy. Tell me a little bit about what you carry forward from her work and, and just how she entered a room. Uh, specifically just you know the interviews itself um, I think the whole reason uh, we did this is because we were seeing our elders uh, who were passing away and one elder can equal a library of knowledge and that's basically what Jace was for us she was that library of knowledge yeah and I got to know Jace when I was a freshman um, coming from a reservation coming to Black Hill State being completely intimidated and out of my comfort zone and having her walk in as a professor eased my sense and made me feel like I belonged in the university system. And I was very lucky to not only learn from her and graduate from BH, but to also be her colleague um, for 15 years. And wow. so making that transition from student to colleague to friend and teacher was something, you know, I hope a lot of people get to experience in their lifetime. Yeah, that's an amazing gift and a, and a mantle to carry forward, Rosie. I mean, like, that's a big responsibility when that, when that was done for you to turn around and do that from, uh, for other new students um, has to be something you yeah. think about often. Yeah. Yes, we do. <laughs> uh, okay, let's talk a little bit about the, the content of this documentary. Some themes come out again and again that people return to partially because of how the interviews were structured, but partially because um, they're very important in many elders' lives, including education. Um, everything from boarding school education to higher ed and a nursing school with Beverly Warren's story. Tell me a little bit about some of the things that you learned or found important to call out in the theme of education? So with Beverly, again, she was, uh, you, you sound like you know Beverly. Uh, Beverly's so been Bev, so generous to come yes. on the show a few times. And actually, when I first started here, I went to see her in person and sat down with her for several hours and have just been, uh, as a radio host, non-native, and I just, pff, again, the generosity um, of her <laughs> spending has, time with me, yeah. Yeah, she is, again, talking about a wealth of knowledge. I mean, yeah. when um, Bev comes in the room, it's like, you know, you sit up straight. And, right. <laughs> um, uh, and so she, what she brought to uh, the interview was, uh, again, she talked about um, what she went through, uh, her schooling as, an, uh, as a nurse, and, you know, t she talked about her, her sons, who she's uh, so proud of. Uh, but she also talked about things that not a lot of people, f I think, know about. She talked about the Oshkosh camps um, mm -hmm. in Rapid City, what Rapid City was like. Um, for Native peoples uh, um, compared to what it's like now. She talked about um, herself growing up and walking down the streets of Rapid City and seeing signs in the window that said no Indians allowed. Um, so again, she brings all of this knowledge that I think not a lot of us get to hear, and especially those of us who live in and around Rapid City. I'll have Erla. I know Erla has a yeah, special Erla, one too please, that she'd like yeah. to share. <laughs> well, I think with all six of the interviewees, right, yeah. they all have a, a different story and a different path. They've all, you know, had their struggles and they've all had their successes. Um, and they, you know, they were all encouraging our youth and everybody behind them, you know, they're trailblazers. And so we get to share in that information with them. And we're so lucky that they could share that with us and make us realize, you know, things get hard, but, you know, if they can make it in their generations, we can make it in ours. Yeah. Erla, go ahead. 
Oh, that was that was <laughs> oh, that was, that was <laughs> oh, Okay, sorry, I got confused. I got confused. Okay. Um, anything else we want to add there, or should we? You feel good? Okay. Another one I yeah. wanted to to bring out um, people's attention to was Dwayne Hollowhorn Bear, who I think had some just really beautiful moments of talking about. Like I I've been thinking a lot about the word humility, and and what that means in different cultures, what it means for my own traditions, what does it mean in 2023, right? In the age of, you know, being on the radio and in social media, like what does humility mean? And it was almost when I was listening to him like a feeling that washed over me where I was like, it's that, but I don't have words for it. Tell me a little bit about Dwayne. Um, I will start it out, but I would like Erla to end this one because she had a very special moment when listening to Dwayne. And again, yeah. Dwayne's another person that when he talks, he has such this, this calming voice right. and you listen because what he's everything he's saying is is you know so honest and true and, and and it humbles you especially as a young native person i mean i'm not that young but i mean a younger native person uh he's very humbling but he's also again very just you know uh you know warm and kind uh, and again in his voice is is very special i had a i was i listened to these interviews i've listened to this documentary probably 10 times now i keep it on as i'm grading or as i'm visiting with students and um, specifically with Dwayne, he stopped me in my tracks as I was listening because mm -hmm. he's told a story, and you'll you can see it and hear it in the um, film. But he says, "I never told anybody that before," you know. And for him to be an educator and a teacher for decades, for him to be able to share something that he hasn't shared um, and be recorded, it was it was it gave me chills. Yeah. You know, I I stopped and really listened to what he had to say because you know, it's, he chose to share that at that time. And so we were really lucky to be able to capture that. Yeah. I, I was going to say that about the process of listening to this documentary or watching it, that you might be tempted to, you know, click around or, you know, multitask. But I, I mean, I can't, you can guarantee a few things in life, but I can almost guarantee that you're going to stop and you're going to say, wait, go back. Um, the conversations are so rich and interwoven that you know, one viewing is not enough, which is the nature of what you've done here at the Center of American Indian Studies. Like this is um, something incredible that you have captured uh, for multiple, multiple listens and views. What's next? What do you want? How do you want the reach to expand? There's a viewing guide so people can really use this in classrooms and educational areas or for home use. Tell me what you are hoping will happen next with this, this program. So uh, the reach is basically that of education. Um, yeah. That's what we wanted to do is capture those, literally capture those voices and their stories, but to also have it as a education piece because a lot of times we have teachers who reach out um, and ask us, you know, do you have any information on this or this? And that's really what we wanted it to be a piece for everybody. Um, when Dr. Marcus was writing this and we really looked at it, she want, we wanted it to be something that was free to the public, um, that you didn't have to rent or buy, um, something that was really easy accessible um, for everybody. Again, really focusing on K through 12. Yeah. Um, our young Native students, and that's why uh, we actually had uh, one of our um, 
our student workers make the uh, program that's available that they can download and look through. Yeah. Um, and again, just kind of focusing on education. Yeah. Well, we're going to put a link up to this Capturing Their Good Voices documentary on our website at sdpb.org slash news, or you could just Google it as well, of course, um, and reach out to the Center of American Indian Studies at Black Hill State University. Any final thoughts, Dr. Marcus, before we let you go about um, future programs and the importance, you know, of conversation and, and telling our stories to one another? Yeah, I think... Um, I would like to just thank the humanities and Black Hill State and our whole team um, that Rosie mentioned earlier. Yeah. And hopefully each one of these interviews were up to an hour apiece, and we're hoping that we can use some of the uh, stories that weren't used and how can we utilize those. And, can, you know, we don't want to ignore what they shared with us. We want to take what they did share and continue to um, put something together so that yeah. we can not just keep it and close the book on it yeah may i suggest some radio conversations on in the moment let's talk <laughs> some <Yes>. excerpted <laughs> excerpted interviews we can go further with this uh dr erla marcus and dr rosie sprague thank you so much for being with us thank you thank you that is our show for today we hope that it served you've got a big show tomorrow because a uh, political philosopher michael sandel is coming to town and joseph horowitz returns to the program lots tomorrow you're on listener supported scpb radio thanks for listening